there were three married couples who were trying to become members at this one particular local church, and one of the requirements to become a member at that church was they had to abstain from sex for a month. I'm not sure why anybody would want to join that church, but these three couples, for some reason, wanted to, not one I'm signing up to join, for sure. After a month, these three couples, they came back to report on their progress to the pastor in sort of a group session. The first couple says, yep, we made it. We did not have sex. And so the pastor welcomes them with open arms into the church body. The next couple, they said, yeah, we made it. We didn't have sex. It was very difficult. As a matter of fact, my husband had to sleep on the couch for the last week, but we made it. And the pastor said, well, good job. Well done. You're welcomed into the church. And the pastor turned to the third couple and asked the question, have you remained chaste for the last month? And the husband said sort of sheepishly, well, I'm sorry, but we we didn't make it, actually. We tried, but we just blew it. It was because she dropped a can of paint the other day, and after she stood up from picking that can of paint up, I, I just couldn't help myself. We just did the deed right then and right there. And the pastor said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, son, but you and your wife cannot be permitted to enter into this particular church. And the husband says, yeah, we, we get it. We understand. We aren't allowed back into Home Depot either. And here's the deal. Around Journey Church, we believe that God wants you to have the best sex that you can possibly imagine. I'm going to say that again. We believe that God wants you to have the best sex you can possibly imagine. It's just true. But unfortunately, it's also true that the most authoritative voice on sex is too often altogether missing from the sex conversation, and that's the voice of God. As a matter of fact, truth be told, God's voice is the only voice that really counts in any conversation about sex, really, because he is the expert on human sexuality. And right now, some of you are sitting in your seats and you're going, oh, great, there goes all my fun. If there's one person, if there's just one person who I don't want meddling in my sexual experiences, it's God, right? But don't jump to conclusions so quickly, please. Because God has words to say about sex that just might surprise and even shock you. After all, it was God who designed and who created sex. God is the author of passion and pleasure. As a matter of fact, if we gathered up all of the collective knowledge and wisdom from every expert on the world on the subject of sexuality and pleasure, it would not equal a single drop in God's vast ocean of wisdom on the topic. Dr. Ruth don't know nothing compared to God. And frankly, God's primary concern with you and with your sex life is not that you will experience too much sex and pleasure, but that you will experience too little. Let me say that again. God's primary concern with you and your sex life is not that you will experience too much sex and pleasure, but that you will experience too little. Concerning sex, God wants you to experience everything it's meant to be and absolutely nothing less than it's meant to be. Now back in my undergrad days, they made me take this class. It was an art class, something like Art Appreciation 101. Maybe you had to take a similar class. And I'm no artist. I don't aspire to be an artist. I deeply appreciate artists, certainly, and I know nothing about art. But I had to take this class. My advisor told me I had to take this class. And our primary work, if you could call it that through the course of the semester, was to attempt to interpret various artists' work. See, 
We would sit in class and we would look at PowerPoint pictures of art and we would be forced to declare out loud what we thought the artist was trying to communicate. What does the work represent? What is this painting, this sculpture all about? And we sat there and we offered a litany of opinions to our professor. And angst, I think, was the most popular answer to the what does the work represent? Because you're looking at like to me it just looked like a blob and I'm like well that's angst that's the only word I know to describe what that is it's angst but our interpretations of art all through that semester they were just opinions weren't they they were just opinions and we could sit in our seats and we could offer our opinions all day long about what it was the artist was intending to communicate what it represents but the only authoritative voice at the end of the day was the voice of the artist right We couldn't speak very well to what the artist was intending to communicate because we weren't the creator of it. Only the artist can say with any degree of certainty what he or she was intending to communicate. Unfortunately, most of the artists whose work we looked at that semester, they were dead, leaving us to our own devices. Allah, the answer, angst. I'm sure it's angst. And see, it's the very same deal when it comes to the sex gig. Only God can speak with real authority on the subject of sex and sexuality. He is the creator of sex. He is the designer of sex. He is the definer of what the purpose and meaning of sex really are. And I find it highly interesting, even comedic, that there are so many people who think that God accidentally created sex that he somehow just sort of stumbled into it, right? Like, oh, here's this anything, and oh, here's this Audi thing, and oh, look at that, they fit together, and oh, what fun, right? It's too good for God just to have stumbled into it. Nor does God blush when it is mentioned. There's popular belief that nice people aren't supposed to want sex, pursue sex, or enjoy sex, as a matter of fact, but that just could not be further from the truth. Sex is God's gig, and his opinion on the matter is the one that counts. And we're tackling this subject of sex this weekend because I've heard some stories recently, I'm sure you have too, that have caused me to be awakened anew to the confusion about sex that is pervading our culture, the church included, and it ought not be so. For example, I heard not long ago about a conversation that a pastor had with a woman whose daughter who had been dating a guy for several years. This woman's daughter had been dating a guy for several years, and the woman mentioned to her pastor that her daughter had very casually mentioned that she and her boyfriend had not ever kissed. They're several years into a relationship, and they had never kissed. All right, the pastor thought, maybe they're one of those weird couples that wants to save their first kiss for their wedding day. But the mother of that girl went on to talk to her pastor and tell her how her daughter was just a wee bit concerned because her boyfriend is not in the least bit physical, like not at all, nothing. No hugs, no holding hands, absolutely nothing. Cold fish were the words that the woman's daughter called her boyfriend. And all of this several years into a relationship. There's something skewed there. How about the story of the youth camp director who was bemoaning the difficulties of running his youth camp? One of his largest, latest challenges involved a 15-year-old girl. It had been revealed that she had been having sex with a man who lived in the vicinity of that camp. That man, of course, got in a whole lot of trouble with the law, but as it turns out, he wasn't the only man that that 15-year-old girl had been having sex with. She had done the same with lots, was the word, of men in the area. 
And that girl's dad was absolutely shocked. He did not have any idea that his daughter was having sex with anyone, let alone lots of men. And then one more example. There was a young woman who recently got married, and in the midst of this newlywed status, she's trying to figure out what it means to love her husband like a wife is supposed to love her husband, yet she's not in the least bit interested in having sex with him. And her head is swirling with a million confusing messages about sexuality and love and him and her obligation, but she just won't talk about it. She just lets it go underground. She refuses to be honest. She refuses to learn. She refuses to be open. And so she just stuffs it. Something's broken about that. And him, I think about him, her husband, right? He's got all kinds of sexual ideals floating around in his head, images, pictures, bits and pieces of stories about what a woman is supposed to do and be, ideals about how his wife is supposed to perform, but it ain't happening for him. And he's tempted to deal with his frustration in ways that will not resolve the issue, but will rather only compound the trouble, driving them further apart than they already are. Something's broken about all of that. And you all know that we live in a sex-saturated culture. We walk around in it 365 days out of the year, all day, every day. We've gone from one extreme to the other as a culture, really. Some of you might remember way back when, when bathing suits used to cover the entire body of both men and women. Remember those days? Like whole body bathing suits, right? Some of you might remember back to the day when it used to be actually scandalous to see a woman's knee. That was scandalous back in the day. My, how far we've come as a culture. Today, pornography in the United States is a multi-billion, multi-billion dollar industry. It's an industry. Sexually explicit messages are regularly piped into our homes through the television, through print media, and of course, through the internet. According to the New York Times, one out of four internet users regularly accesses pornographic websites. One out of four. And the ultimate example of how far that pendulum has swung is found in the story of a man named Hugh Hefner. You all know who Hugh is. In an interview, Hefner spoke of being raised in a setting in which, these are his words, sex was for procreation only. The rest was sin. He went on to say, and I quote, our family was prohibitionist, Puritan in a very real sense. We never hugged. Oh no, there was absolutely no hugging, no kissing in our family. There was a point in time when my mother later in life apologized to me for not being able to show affection. That was, of course, the way I had been raised, Hefner said. I said to her, mom, you couldn't have done it any better. And because of the things that you weren't able to do, it set me on a course that changed my life and changed the world. And the world did change, didn't it? When in the 1950s, that young entrepreneur, a man named Hugh Hefner, left his job at neat and tidy Fortune Magazine, that's where he used to work, Fortune Magazine, to start a little enterprise called Playboy, which opened the floodgates of pornography upon our culture. One fell swoop. And so we live in this world of this great extreme, don't we? There are a whole bunch of us, even a whole bunch of us who are Christ followers, who deny our sexuality almost entirely. We never talk about it. We never embrace it. Living in a sort of denial about the sexual part of ourselves that God created in us. 
And then on the opposite extreme are those of us, even Christ followers, who are perpetually driven by our sexuality, almost controlled and overrun by it. And then there's a whole lot of space in between those two extremes. But the question really comes down to, what does God have to say about sex, right? His voice is the one that really matters. What's God's view on how our sexuality is supposed to operate in the year 2008 in a sex-crazed, sex-saturated culture? And it's those kinds of questions we're going to tackle together today. If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to open it up to Proverbs chapter 5. We're going to hang out together in Proverbs 5 for the rest of the time that we have remaining today. Proverbs chapter 5, starting right in verse 1. You can follow along on the side screens if you don't have a text. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen carefully to my wise counsel. Then you will show discernment and your lips will express what you've learned. For the lips of an immoral woman are as sweet as honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as poison, as dangerous as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave, for she cares nothing about the path to life. She staggers down a crooked trail and doesn't realize it. And so we see in the first six verses of Proverbs 5 a stern warning concerning the immoral woman. And notice how at the very beginning of the text, the emphasis is on wisdom, right? And a really great working definition, I think, of the word wisdom is the art of Godward and skillful living. That's wisdom, Godward and skillful living. And see, God's wisdom is like the grain that's in and that's on a piece of wood, right? Godward and skillful living or wisdom is the art of living with the grain of God's wisdom rather than trying to live against the grain of God's wisdom, see? And Proverbs chapter 5 is an instruction to us about how to live with the grain of God's wisdom in the area of the sexuality that he put inside of all of us. This particular instruction comes to us through the grid of a father who is instructing his son and sons about wise living. Thus the warning is about immoral women, right? But I want you to get this, and I want to be really clear here. The principles of Proverbs chapter 5 are not exclusive to men, okay? These are not exclusive to men. They apply to all facets of our sexuality, both men and women. Had the author been writing to his daughter, he might just as easily have warned about immoral men. You think about it like this. The immoral women that are used all through Proverbs 5 represents any source of sexual temptation, okay? Immoral women represents any source of sexual temptation. It could be a man, it could be a woman. It could be the cover of a magazine promising enticing words and pictures inside the cover. It could be an email link to an explicit website that promises instantaneous pleasure. It could be a pop-up internet ad inviting you to certain pleasure. It could be a romance novel even. Maybe an attraction to your next door neighbor. Immoral women sexual temptation, any form of sexual temptation. And one of the constant threads through Proverbs chapter five is that sexual temptation that dangles in front of every, and it does, doesn't it? Sexual temptation dangles in front of every single one of us almost every single day. And here's the deal. That sexual temptation that dangles in front of us always promises us something better than what it's able to deliver on. Sexual temptation always promises us something better than it's able to deliver on. On the surface, sexual temptation, it like drips with honey 
right? Now, honey is an absolutely beautiful thing. I have a whole bunch of it here, a whole tub of honey. Raise your hand if you like honey. Yes, yes, all of you do. I love peanut butter and honey sandwiches. They're just delightful. The honey can't be on there too long or it makes the bread soggy, right? But I love honey. This is sweet, succulent, alluring honey. And uh, I think it's funny that I have props for a sermon about sex, especially a whole tub full of of honey, right? You could have a lot of fun with this. (laughs) Married people only. Married people only. But honey is sweet, right? Very sweet. But in Proverbs chapter 5, this honey represents the words of seductive flattery that appeal right to a person's ego. Words like, you're special. Words like, you're so attractive. Words like, I want you are words that all drip with the sweetness of honey, don't they? Now, the author goes on to equate sexual temptation as being smoother than oil. This is pins oil. I'm not sure that's the type that the author of the proverb was talking about, but uh, it's a large jug of oil. And so here it is for your viewing pleasure. Her words are smooth as oil, sweet like honey, smooth as oil. And it's just true, isn't it? The sources of sexual temptation in our lives, they always say all of the right things to bait and lure us in. But there's a hidden agenda beneath those words, right? There's a hidden agenda beneath the pop-up ad. You see, pornography, just for instance, pornography. Pornography is not at all about sex. It is not at all about sex. Pornography, at the very end of the day, at the very bottom of the ladder, is all about money. See, that's what pornography is about. Pornography is about you paying as much money as you possibly will pay to look at sexually explicit, sexually exciting material. Pornography isn't about sex. Just like most sources of sexual temptation are all about hidden agendas, phantom agendas, What's underneath it? Maybe it's an agenda for money, as in the case of pornography. Maybe it's an agenda for power. It's never about sex. But no matter what the agenda is, in the end, what started out as sweet as honey ends up what, does the text say? As bitter as poison. And I bought these rat pellets. Poison pellets for rats. And I didn't try them because I wanted to be here today. But I just assume that these are not good, right? These are going to be bitter. The box says, you know, whatever you do, don't eat these and don't let your children eat them. These are bad deals. And what starts out as sweet as honey, what starts out as smooth as oil, ends up what? Bitter as poison. And this stuff, if you eat this, it will tear you up, won't it? Same deal with sexual temptation. It will tear you up up. When all is said and done, the sweetness is gone, long gone, and all that's left is bitterness and damage. The proverb goes on to talk about sexual temptation as being like a double-edged sword, and I have a very large sword here. That's something else, isn't it? And if I swung this, and this happened to hit somebody, it would cause immense damage, right? You can picture the damage in your head. You're like, Hopkins, be careful with that thing. Not sure you're man enough to handle that, as a matter of fact. (laughs) 
But you can picture the damage that this thing would rend on somebody. And the same thing goes with sexual temptation. It starts out sweet like honey. It starts out smooth like oil. It, it, it ends up bitter like poison. And as damaged as if you've been hit with a double-edged sword. This is Pastor Sam's, by the way. He loaned it to me. Very kind of him. And get this. Proverbs chapter 5 is not blaming women for sexual temptation. Okay? Men, you are not off the hook. It is not blaming women for sexual temptation. It is merely using a case study model to illustrate the incredible power of sexual temptation. And the case study is representative of all manner of sexual temptation. It could be a man tempting a woman. It could be the temptation of an internet porn site. It could be a magazine. It could be a romance novel. It could be a movie. It could be whatever. And the warning in the first section of Proverbs 5 is that the temptation to indulge in sexual pleasure without following God's design always looks better than it really is. It always looks better than it really is. What looks as sweet as honey is really bitter as poison. What looks smooth as oil is really sharper than a two-edged sword that'll cut you up. Sexual temptation creates an inviting illusion and then tries to persuade us that that illusion is the real deal and that illusion will last, but it won't. The author of Proverbs invites us to see sexual temptation for what it really is breaking out of the illusion that is so often peddled to us day in and day out. Let's look at the second chunk of Proverbs 5, verses 7 through 14 this time. So now, my sons, listen to me. Never stray from what I'm about to say. Stay away from her. Don't go near the door of her house. If you do, you will lose your honor and will lose to merciless people all you have achieved. Strangers will consume your wealth and someone else will enjoy the fruit of your labor. In the end, you will groan in anguish when disease consumes your body. You will say, how I hated discipline. If only I had not ignored all the warnings. Oh, why didn't I listen to my teachers? Why didn't I pay attention to my instructors? I have come to the brink of utter ruin, and now I must face public disgrace. You all know this, that there are real and lasting consequences to giving in to sexual temptation outside of God's context for it. There are real and lasting consequences to giving in to sexual temptation. The father is urging his sons in this instance to steer way clear of that temptation. Don't even go down the street, he says, because it is an incredibly slippery slope and the bottom is a long way down there. The father goes on to list for us several of the consequences his son can expect if he gives in to the sweet-sounding sexual temptation. Here they are. He says, you'll lose your honor. You'll lose your honor, the honor that you've worked an entire lifetime to achieve and uphold in one single decision can be long gone. You will lose your honor. You will lose your achievement. Everything you've worked hard to accrue, everything you've worked hard to arrive at, gone. You'll lose your wealth. It's just simply true that sexual sin costs an awful lot of money, doesn't it? According to verse 11, here's something we don't often think about with regard to sexual sin. It can even cut our lives short. Get that. Sexual sin can even cut our lives short. Nobody's thinking about that. 
when the enticement is right in front of them. We just think it'll be fun. It'll feel really good. Nobody ever goes, you know, I could get a disease out of this that could actually cut my life short, especially with the prevalence of HIV AIDS these days and a whole litany of other STDs that are roaming around out there. It could actually cut your life short. And according to verses 12 and 13, we'll also have regrets. These painful little things called regrets. It's one of the reasons we're talking about this this weekend. Because it is our hope and it is our prayer for every person in this community that you would be able to live the most regret-free life possible. A life of no regrets. That you would have the chance to look back over your life when you're old and gray if God is gracious enough to give you that many years and not have any regrets. Listen to the words of a man named Richard whose story was printed in an article in Men's Health a couple of years ago. Here's what he said. Cheating was the worst mistake I ever made in my life. Even without the affair, I don't know whether or not my wife and I would have stayed together, but I felt really bad about cheating on my wife. I didn't want a divorce. I didn't even really want to be with that woman I cheated with. It's just that she was telling me what I wanted to hear, and everything felt fine until right after it happened, he said. Then I just felt terrible. The consequences of sexual sin are incredibly sobering. Incredibly sobering. And when we choose to indulge in sexual pleasure without following God's design, we end up damaging ourselves and damaging those who we love the most. The third section of Proverbs 5, let's press into it together. The temperature is going to heat up a little in the room. Here's what the proverb says. And this is the Bible, remember, okay? Drink water from your own well, he says. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets, having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you always. That's fun. May you always be captivated by her love. And see, God's gotten an incredibly bad rap on this sexuality deal. Forever, people have portrayed God and Christianity as being just flat anti-sex. The media, you see it, too often characterizes Christians as being sexually repressed, prude, Puritan fanatics who are just trying to restrict everyone else's fun. But the alternative to sexual sin is not just stuffing. It isn't just repression. It isn't just pretending that our sexuality doesn't exist. As a matter of fact, in this passage, Proverbs 5, 15 to 19, the Bible is quite striking, isn't it, in its frankness and honesty about our sexuality and even sex. The author uses the metaphor of water to describe our sexuality. And here he is encouraging his sons to stay within the context for which God created sex in the first place. This water, he says, is intended to run in one channel only, and it's the channel of marriage. Keep it there. Sex is made for marriage. Keep it in the place it was intended for. See, sexual activity is reserved by God, who you remember is the author and the creator and the designer and the inventor of sex for man and for wife and only for man and for wife. That's why we picked the one-way sign for this particular message. Because of God's profound 
emphasis on the fact that sexual activity is reserved for husband and wife alone. There is one way for sexual activity, the way that God intended it in the first place. Now get this. In the confines of marriage, it is not restricted to just one way. I hope you do not have a one-way sign hanging over your bed, married people. Like, get rid of the one-way sign and innovate and create and have fun. Throw out the one-way sign, married people. Right? Like, get after it. Be creative. And you can laugh at that. It's all right. Because, see, God has a profoundly positive attitude toward our sexuality. In Proverbs 5, we see God actually bless human sexuality. Let your wife, the text says, let your sexual relationship with your wife be a blessing to you. God is very pro-sex. He's as pro-sex as it gets, actually. It's his gig, remember. He's the one who created it. He's the one who thought of it. He's the one who wired and created us as sexual beings, as men and women. But the blessing of the sexual relationship exists in just one context, and that's marriage. One context, and that's marriage. Nothing outside of marriage. And in verse 19 of Proverbs 5, the Bible, this is the Bible, it actually borders on erotica, doesn't it? as the text reflects on the seductive beauty of a wife to her husband. The female deer or a doe was a common metaphor for beauty in the ancient world. Now perhaps if Proverbs was being written today, the wife would be called something else besides a deer, but here she's called a loving deer, a graceful doe, right? I think it brings a whole new meaning to the words deer hunting, right? Husbands, put on your hunter's orange. Go at it. I'll try calling Dana a doe tonight and see how that goes for us. And that word that's translated captivated in verse 19, it usually means intoxicated with wine. That's cool. The idea, see, is that the husband is to be absolutely intoxicated by his passion and by his desire for his wife and for his wife alone. And Proverbs 5 isn't just referring to how a husband and wife feel about each other on their wedding day and for a few days after the honeymoon, but that this erotic passion would be cultivated and stewarded and pursued throughout all of marriage, all of it, your whole life of being married. Sexual pleasure, according to God, is to be enjoyed within the context of the covenant of marriage. And I mean the word enjoy, and so does God. God created our sexuality for us to enjoy. He didn't just make sexual activity pleasurable to like coax us into having children, okay? He rather designed sex to cultivate the highest level of pleasure and intimacy as the gift of marriage, the gift of marriage. And then let's look at the last chunk of Proverbs 5 together. We'll close it out here. Verses 20 to 23. Why be captivated, my son, by an immoral woman or fondle the breasts of a promiscuous woman? For the Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path he takes. An evil man is held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that catch and hold him. He will die for lack of self-control. He will be lost because of his great foolishness. The author of this proverb reminds us that everything we do is observed 
by God. Well, we might think that we've covered our tracks. God sees it all. And the author also warns us that our choices, they have the potential of holding us captive. Captive, not just for a little while, but captive for the rest of our lives captive. Like a mouse caught in a trap, venturing outside of God's boundaries for sexual pleasure. Well, it's just flat dangerous. That's what the text says. It's not my words. It's the Bible's words on the matter. Venturing outside of God's boundaries for sexual pleasure is just flat dangerous. We find ourselves tied to our sinful behavior. And that tying up and that captivity, it takes all kinds of forms. It can take the form of a whole life of regret. Where we're always saying, I wish I wouldn't have. Why'd I do that? I don't even remember what that, a whole life of regret. The captivity can take the form of an unintended pregnancy. That'll change your life forever. It can take the form of a sexual addiction. It is absolutely amazing how many people, primarily men on this one, are addicted to pornography. So many people, men primarily, are walking around planet Earth living a double life, captive to their next fix from the glowing computer monitor. And get this, that pornography addiction, it seldom just stops with pornography. Left untreated and undealt with, it leads to more and more and more self-destructive behaviors. It can lead to online relationships, prostitution, child molestation, and on and on and on. The slope is very slippery, and the bottom is a long way down there. But get this, it doesn't have to go that way. It does not have to go that way. We do not have to be held captive to the consequences of our sexual sin. God invites us to his very best, as a matter of fact, with regard to our sexuality, even if you're a long way down the wrong path or if you're just starting down the wrong path. God invites us to his very best. And we don't see it here in Proverbs chapter five. Proverbs five doesn't grapple with what to do if you've already started down the wrong path. But the rest of the Bible does, especially the words of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. They emphasize the power of God to change the direction of anyone who has chosen less than God's best with regard to their sexual expression. We see Jesus throughout the New Testament consistently bringing health and new life and redemption to men and women who are living outside of the context of God's boundaries for sexual expression. All over the Bible, we find those who are engaged in prostitution and premarital sex, those cheating on their spouses, to be utterly transformed by the power of God through Jesus Christ. And if you're sitting in this room today, and if you've made choices that have taken you down the wrong path, you might be a long way down that path, or you might be just a little way down that path. With regard to your sexuality, it is never too late to start over. It is never too late to start over. Nothing that you've done is bad enough to keep you from God's very best, to keep you from God's fresh, clean start. I'm gonna ask you to set your things aside, if you would, please, and would you just go to prayer? And I just invite you to speak to the Lord about what it is you're thinking about. Just spend some time talking to him and listening to him.
going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Nobody's looking around this room. And I want to ask for a real candid, honest show of hands here today. Maybe the most candid and honest we've ever been in this room. How many of you in this room today are living in a regular pattern of expressing your sexuality outside of God's intended boundaries? Would you just be so bold as to just, I want you to know no one's looking around. Just slip your hand up and go, yeah, I'm living outside of God's intended. Yeah, there's hands all over this room right now. Thanks for your candor. You can put those hands down. And those of you who just raised your hands, I want you to think on this for a moment. How many of you want God's fresh, new, clean start? How many of you want God to wipe the slate clean with regard to your sexual expression and you just want to start all over again? Would you be so bold as to raise your hand and go, yes, I need that today. Yeah, way to go. Hands all over this room. Way to go. You can put those down. Way to go. You can start fresh today. Some of you, I'd imagine, who just raised your hands, you follow Jesus. And so you know that starting over again simply involves a conversation with God. That's all it is. A conversation where you confess your sin, where you ask him to forgive you, where you commit to a plan of action with him that will keep that stuff from ever happening again. If you want a fresh start, I just invite you to get about that conversation with God right now. Just transact whatever business you need to do with God around that. Maybe you need to break up with someone. Make a plan. Maybe you need to literally throw your computer away. That's a drastic step, but maybe that's what you need to do. Make a plan. There's other ways to get around the internet pornography gig. We can help you with that. There's programs that we can put on your computer that let somebody, a friend of yours, you choose who, look in and see what it is that you're looking at. Every website you ever look at. And if they see stuff that's sketchy, they're going to ask you about it. And go, hey, what was that? What are you, what's going on there? An accountability partner. Make a plan to do that. Maybe you need to stop going to a place. Maybe there's a place that you frequent that just takes you down every time. Just say, I'm not going there anymore. Maybe you need to get about memorizing more of God's word because you've got this, these sex tapes that play over and over in your head and you need to replace that stuff with God's stuff. Memorizing God's word will make that happen. It's the fast track, as a matter of fact, to making that happen. Whatever you need to do to get to that place of starting over again, just do business with God and get to it. And maybe you're sitting in this room today and you're saying, I want to start over with my sexuality, certainly. What I really need to do is start over with my whole life, frankly. I need the entire slate of my life wiped clean. If that's you, your opportunity today is to receive the gift of salvation from Jesus Christ. Your opportunity today is to take Jesus up on his gift of life and salvation and forgiveness, redemption, a new start that he's extending to you right here and right now. 
You can start over once and for all in every way by acknowledging that Jesus loves you immeasurably, that he died on the cross to be your savior, to be the rescuer of your soul, and by putting your faith and trust in him, by the blood he shed on the cross for you, to cover all your sin. And if that's you, if you're choosing to do that today, I'd invite you just to express that to God by praying along with me a prayer that goes something like this. God, thank you so much for sending your one and only son, Jesus, to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned, but today, God, I realize that you are perfect and that you are holy and that my sin has separated me from you. I did that, God. But God, with everything in me, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for that sin. And I ask you to please forgive me. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend. And God, I need you to change me. And God, I really need you to clean my life up. And please, God, help me live a life of sexual expression the way you intended it. According to the boundaries that you established, God. And if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, I want you to know that that's the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight. And around here, it's such a big deal that we actually ask people to tell us when they made that decision. And so I'm going to ask you to do that with me. Nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody's looking around the room but me. If you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and say, yes, I started all over again. Way to go right there. And you two, way to go. And you three, right there, way to go. Right now, God is changing you, and he's making you brand new, all of you. Are there any others? Just make sure I catch your eye, please. I don't want to miss you. God, we say thank you. We say thank you mostly for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who sets us free from being captive of a life of stuff that goes against the grain of your wisdom and your truth, God. But we also say thank you for this fantastic gift called sex. It's a gift from you. It's your deal. And we're real grateful for it. You didn't have to give it to us, but you did, and so we receive it. And God, we as a community, we commit to be people who pursue purity in every arena, purity. Especially sexual purity, God. We commit to be people who put things down that limit our ability to please you on the sexual purity front. God, we're gonna be people who break up when we're stepping over lines that we're not meant to step over. God, we commit to be people who don't shack up before we're married because we think that's what we're supposed to do. God, we're not going to do that. We're going to be people who even move out and start over again to do it right. We're going to be people who throw computers away and get accountability partners because we want to please you in the area of sexual purity, God. That's our heart. And this isn't something that we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps on and go, yes, I'm going to do this. We need your strength. We need the power of your Holy Spirit. And so come and give us that power, please. Leverage it fully in our lives as we seek to be 
pure in every way, God. What a God you are and what a privilege it is to call ourselves your children. We're yours and we love you and we worship you. You're our God. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.